Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Somerville, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. This month, we're talking about Jewish influencers. What and how are they influencing us? And what trends do we see and like or dislike? Mimi, this is your topic, so I'm going to have you take it away. Thank you, Tamar. Thank you all for indulging me. This is a topic I've been wanting to talk about for a while. And, I, you know, Zahava is not on Instagram, which is something she will, I'm sure, tell us more about. But part of why I wanted to talk about Jewish influencers is that I want, I really wanted to get Zahava's reaction to some of the Jewish influencers that I see and follow and the trends that I'm seeing. It, and, you know, I think to to bring it a little bit deeper than just, Zahava, what did you think? Um, <laughs> there's also just like a funny combination that goes on when you, with these Jewish videos or influencer style people, just that like influencer is usually a pretty shallow field. It's, you know, it's obsessed with trends and how things look, whatever it takes to get the views, to get the likes, to get the followers. And so to me, it's really interesting what happens when the influencers are speaking from a Jewish place and when their reels are about areas of halakha or Jewish values generally, or even when they're especially curating their reels to get views, but they're also talking about sneas or modesty. So I'm just like very curious to sort of wade into this um, with both of you. Maybe Tamar, do you want to start us off by talking about like you sent around some links and maybe you could share what we all looked at together? I'm also very interested in talking about this because I have so many these are served to me like very regularly on Instagram. I just said like, what is happening here? Like, who are these for? Is I guess like my like deepest question because so we looked at a bunch of different people. We we looked at Razie Freed, who's like really a Hasidic Brooklyn wife and mother who is like trying to be the Hasidic Martha Stewart, like pretty openly. So that's like one take. And and her videos are very formal. Like, literally, they're formal. Like, she's always setting a very formal table. But also, like, they are very staged. Like, she sits in a chair in a nice setting with another woman talking about what it means to be a Jewish woman and the beauty of Jewish womanhood or whatever. And that is, it just is, it's not the, like, personal, this is a glimpse into my life that you kind of expect from some influencers. So it's, it's an interesting, that's kind of one piece. Then we have one of Mimi and Mai's uh, old faves, the Bohemian Balabusta. <laughs> Love you, Malka Khanna. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious woman who lives in Israel and is obsessed with Nita and helping women find the awesomeness of connecting to their true selves through their cycle. And Mimi got me a coloring book of hers that I love and think is hilarious. And she's like a lot of women empowerment, but it's through the lens of Nita. Then there are, I would say, more straight ahead Kiruvi accounts. I have a funny story about a woman named Yaffa Pelty, who does like, this is what I think about the Parsha and how you guys should like really learn something amazing from this week's Parsha. That's her shtick. 
There's also, I think I included on this list, a woman who is not Jewish, but she is a nanny for a bunch of from families. And so she has a TikTok account where she talks about what it's like to be the non-Jewish nanny for all these from families, which is very funny. Although it is also, funnily enough, veering into the, there's like a whole genre of, like, I would say the the uniting category of all of these Jewish influencers. First of all, they're all women. And second of all, they talk so, so much about Nita, so about menstruation and going to the mikvah, about Tznia, so how they dress typically is what that means. They talk a lot about, I mean, it's funny because it's like, not talking about sex to talk about, or talking about sex about how we don't talk about sex. Like, it's a very sex-obsessed view of orthodoxy. I just, I'm like, who was this for? That's my overwhelming question when I look at these, is like, what is this doing? And who is it doing it for? So, Zahava, what did it do for you? (laughs) Did you think to yourself, Gosh, I might need to get back on Instagram so that I can be more influenced by Razy and Bohemian Bell stuff. I, I did not discover a burning desire to get on Instagram. Um, <laughs> but, and I was a little bit sort of confused by it. I think not by it in and of itself, but 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 because Instagram is really the home of influencer culture. Mm-hmm. And so this just like is not a genre. Jewish or not, that I encounter a lot. And so I feel like there are many norms and artistic conventions and tropes that are being presented here that I am just not fluent in. And so I could immediately tell this isn't the style of something I've never seen before, but it is definitely an established style. Mm. Cards on the table about my social media life. I used to be a very heavy Facebook user. I am no longer on Facebook, but Instagram was having its initial ascendancy during a time when I was a very heavy Facebook user. And I consciously said, I don't need another social media platform to use this heavily. And so I didn't join. I got Twitter for work several years ago. I still have Twitter and my circle on Twitter is mostly people in my professional universe. And so my Twitter world is not very Jewish. Obviously, same thing with LinkedIn, though there I have many personal family members, acquaintances, friends, whatever, who are Jewish, who are connected to me on LinkedIn, but they're not being super Jewish on LinkedIn either, <laughs> on the whole. Guys, this is what you should tell your manager about what we learned from this week's Parsha. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not out of the question. Someone is definitely doing that, but I don't, I don't want to see it. So I would say the only plan on which I sort of organically encounter anything in of this ilk at all is YouTube, which I don't I don't use YouTube as social media. I am a passive viewer of YouTube. I don't interact in comments. I don't make anything of my own. But I think a lot of these women either are also on YouTube or there were sort of predecessors on YouTube. Um, And some of the vibe actually reminds me of years and years ago, we did a segment where we talked about a hair covering oriented Facebook group. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I was involved in that group, I was watching a lot of YouTube tutorials of how to tie a scarf in a certain way. And some of those women were very into the spirituality of covering their hair for Jewish reasons and uh, shared a lot about it. And I think that's its own genre, but like tutorials of scarf wrapping predated Instagram and were 
was very big on YouTube for a long time in a certain segment. And but I recognize a vibe from people who are like, this is a thing that I do. And here's how I find it spiritual. That said, I'm not on Facebook anymore. So I don't have any of this in my life except on YouTube. And I would say the form is unfamiliar to me, but every one of these people is incredibly recognizable to me, not individually, but they are all just doing something that they would have been doing in another medium if there wasn't Instagram, but in shorter forms and with different framing and backgrounds. There are women who would have spoken at my ninth grade Shabbaton and been all inspirational that now have apparently Instagram influencer profiles. The the idea of the like lifestyle guru is not specific to Razie Freed, obviously, right? She's not trying to do that, but she's not trying to be a new thing. She's trying to specifically bring an old thing to a new territory. But I, I felt like, okay, I know all of these women in their archetypes. They're just using a new medium. It kind of reminded me of the way in which Chabad as a movement embraces whatever medium is available to reach people and is very much on the cutting edge of whatever is available. Made me think Chabad probably has a huge like engineered influencer presence on Instagram. I don't know that for sure, but I would be surprised if, you know, Chabad Shluchim were not taking advantage of this extensively. Chabad emissaries in, in other parts of the world, but it just feels like a very familiar thing in unfamiliar clothing. The thing that I notice about these videos is an attempt to be spiritual in a way that I often don't see in the Jewish community. I think that a lot of these videos feel kind of Christian to me Mm. in the way that they are so like, oh my God, the beautiful relationship I have with my religion is so meaningful in my life. And it's just like, I believe that's true. I know many people, including myself, for whom that is true. It is not how I ever talk about Judaism. And so hearing people talk about it is always kind of jarring to me because I'm like, oh, I associate this with Christians. And it's weird to see a lot of from Jews doing it on the internet. I'm curious if that like resonates with you or if this is just like my weird shtick. To me, it feels like a yeshivish woman modality within Judaism. So by that, I mean, I think, you know, I'm modern Orthodox and I'm betting, Tamar, that most of the people in your Orthodox circle are also modern Orthodox and not to the right of that, right? Not from a more black hat or Hasidic community. And this feels to me coming from a more right-wing stream of Orthodoxy that a lot of women's education which is somewhat less text heavy than men's education, certainly emphasizes different texts or different kinds of lenses to put on text learning and less legalistic and more moralistic, that this is something that I think that a yeshivist women's education in kind of a slant way produces, right? If you tried to translate that education into A, English vocabulary, and B, something that could be understood by a decently broad, not incredibly community-specific audience, you would wind up with a broader, less legalistic, more about personal observance and meaning spirituality that I think in contemporary American society is more commonly found in Christianity. But I think that's just because this stream of yeshivish womanhood has not gotten a lot of primetime attention before. That's my guess. 
I think that that's true for some of these women, but like the Bohemian Balabusta is not yeshivish. In fact, she's Balchuva. So I suppose she may be, she may still be influenced. She's an influencer, but she's been influenced by the yeshiva, yeshivish woman modality. That is a hilarious thing to think. <laughs> I think the thing that is most interesting about Razy Free, just to talk about just her for a second, is that this is very clearly her job. She is really going for it. Like she has a website. You have to, if you want to watch her videos, you actually have to like subscribe and pay money. She has recipes and interviews. She has an entire branded app. Yeah, she has an app and she does like tablescapes. And like, I think what is fascinating to me about her is like, that is so much really about wealth. The lifestyle that she is selling is not so much a from lifestyle as a rich from lifestyle. She had a video about how to set up your daughter's birthday party, slumber party. And it was like, imagined a situation in which you were going to buy little tents, little teepees for each child at your daughter's birthday party. And they, like all of these things for each child at the birthday party, not like a goodie bag, like a whole aesthetic created for this. And I was just like, I don't know, this belongs in like real simple magazine. Where is, who, what, how big is the Venn diagram of people who like have the money to spend on their daughter's birthday party decor and the people who are interested in decorating advice from Razy Freed? Like that just seems like a very small group of people. And yet, Martha Stewart built an entire empire, which was also based primarily on spending a lot of money for your events. I also will just speak out about Razy because for research purposes, I did subscribe to the app. <laughs> so uh, tell me everything. I want to give you the inside scoop from the app, which I, I actually thought was really fascinating. Her interviews were great. I think that she's like, been an influencer for long enough that she's thought a lot about the choices that you make and what it means business-wise, but also like about how you spend your time. So she moved away from Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. She still has those platforms, but she moved to her own platform because she didn't like the way this, I learned this from an interview she had with this woman, I think Julie Geller, who runs marketing for Aisha Torah. Julie also made a similar move. They didn't like the way that you were like at the mercy of the algorithm. And so you were spending like three hours to make a 30 second clip of yourself jumping around or something. With her app, she's able to have these longer form interviews with women doing really interesting things in the Jewish world that I thought were contentful. And she's thought about at one point, I used my kids in my videos. Now I don't. I don't use my husband in my videos. That's not even my home that I'm usually sitting in to show you these tablescapes. Like, she's thought about the privacy of it. I think using sneas or modesty is an interesting choice because I, to me, there's something about like the displays of wealth that feels very immodest. But modesty, the way Razy Freed talks about it, is about the privacy of her family and the way she dresses and not about like how she spends money and encourages others to spend money. Fine, just an interesting point. I think that for a lot of these influencers, and I think that Razie's trying to move away from it based on some of the videos I watched, 
I think the audience is other influencers. I just really think that they're often like bringing each other on their videos. And if you look at the comments on the videos, it's usually other people who have, let's say, 20,000 followers or more who are trying to rise up. I think you make the videos for other influencers and for brands that want to advertise to monetize it. And like, yeah, other followers are great. But there's there's like more predictability in gathering other influencers as your followers. I think the definition of modesty here is really interesting because I think a lot of these women are coming from segments of the Jewish community where in a pre-social media era, it would have been considered immodest for them to put themselves forward as public figures in a way that was accessible outside the community. If, you know, Yaffa Pelty were to like, try to get the kind of following where 600 people would come and see her in an auditorium on a Saturday night, that would have been considered potentially immodest by the standards of the community that she's from. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting that it is not immodest to put yourself out there for 20,000 followers. I think there's an interesting, well, I'm putting myself out there to be accessible to my exact demographic and community. And if anybody else stumbles across it, that is a choice they're making, right? I'm I'm imputing all of this to people that I've never discussed this with. But I think that there's possibility within the realm of social media, maybe sort of a mutually agreed upon fiction that you are speaking for a women for a women only audience. And that this is just the same extended demographic that might come to a 20-person parlor meeting or little class that you were giving in, in your friend's home in your community. That basically that identical demographic that happens to live all over the world can now access your videos, your inspiration, your you know thought on the weekly Parsha, your interview with a friend who practices mindfulness through a Jewish lens that that's accessible more broadly, but we have this fiction that it's only within our community, just an extended geographic definition of that same community. But at the same time, this is literally available to anyone with an internet connection. And it's just interesting to me to see modesty defined outwards that way. I mean, I think this is a moment where we should bring up um, what happened to an influencer uh, under the handle Flatbush Girl, she was giving a talk on, I think, in, or she was participating in a conversation on Instagram Live, I think, with other Jewish women. And it was, I guess, I'm going to get some of the details wrong. Apologies, listeners. But for some reason, people were allowed to be on camera and join the talk. And so they let somebody in who had the handle of like a a name that sounded within the community. And it was a male flash, somebody who flashed everybody on in the um, conversation. And in a reaction to this event, which was public, it was on Instagram Live and many people were tuned in. I think her name's Adina Miles Sash. She was inundated with people from within the community talking about how she deserved this because she had put herself out there. And in some ways, I think it probably, for a lot of people, blew up this notion that what you do on Instagram is stays within that small community. It doesn't. 
But I think it's worth talking about that the content of that Instagram Live had to do with women's options in dealing with pregnancy crises and unplanned pregnancy, that this was something that, I don't know if the word abortion was spoken, this was something that had to do with limiting women's care options in pregnancy and was related to the diminishment of abortion rights in the United States. And I think that it was targeted not just because a woman was speaking to a broad audience, but because a woman was speaking to a broad audience in a way that was not sanctioned, Mm -hmm. that there was something topical about that and something that people associate with irresponsibility or promiscuity or something that's, you know, that they were lumping her in with something that is, to use a phrase, pasnished, right? Like not okay in the community as a matter of content and not just a matter of form. There's a lot of conversation about what is sanctioned and what's not. You know, I, I was looking up, I was trying to find criticism of Razie Freed and there's a lot, of, a lot of commentators out there like, did she talk to a Rav about this? Like, <laughs> and it comes up a lot with what various people say. Like, uh, how does she have the authority to talk about this, to be out in social media in this way? Yeah, really interesting. I wonder also about the ways in which there's this kind of double-edged sword where, like, on the one hand, if you put yourself out there, you're opening yourself up to criticism, possibly some of the intrusions, like the the flasher, like that kind of thing can happen. But none of this would ha- would be an issue if nobody was watching these videos. Like, obviously, there's a market for this. And so the people who want to say, like, well, this person deserved what they got, it's like, you know, there are hundreds of people on this call watching this happen. They also got that, but they also were opting in. So... It is so interesting how much people want to at the same time say like this shouldn't happen, but if it happens, like they want to be there and they want to be a part of it and they want to see what's going on. And I think that's all natural. Like this, this isn't a critique of that. I just think that that is an important part of the rhetoric around this is that like both women are going to be criticized for having, for being a part of this and for putting themselves out there in this public way that is seen as not SNES. And I mean, I think sometimes there's like Razie Freed who's seen, who can be seen as like not SNES because of how much she's putting herself out there, but she's not putting anything that is considered in and of itself not SNES out there. Like she is dressing very SNEASly. She is presenting a very SNES life by the kind of traditional definition of, of SNES, of modesty. But then you have people who are really talking about Tineas a lot, but talking about it in a way that is actually quite open about sex and sexuality and and intimacy and all of that is, like, it's interesting because it is really done in the service of, like, for lack of a better term, selling people on a from lifestyle. But it is also very much, like, not Tineas. Like, it really is, like, here's a way to entice people, and it is by talking, ultimately, about sex. Which, to be clear love talking about sex. <laughs> this works on me. But um, now that I've been watching Bohemian Balabusta, I'm super from and obsessed with my menstrual cycle. <laughs> it does seem like inherently kind of a paradox to me and, and interesting that this is how a lot of women are, a lot of from influencers are kind of marketing themselves is like using this like Jewish women, Sneas, Nita, story, which in a way 
is still very much a story about women and sexuality. I think that's what I mean, though, when I'm talking about the fiction, that this is just for a narrow version of the women in my community that just happens to be geographically extended. This reminds me a little bit, if I could be, um, you know, retro about it, of a Facebook group that I was in extremely briefly called, um, I think, something like Jewish Women Talk Frankly About Intimacy. It was an invite-only group. You had to agree to a very extensive uh, code of conduct and secrecy in order to be approved by the moderators. I, I thought the whole thing was very interesting. I was in it for about two days. It wasn't for me, but it lived up to the title. Like it was Jewish women talking frankly about intimacy. There was a lot of stuff about Nita. There was a lot of stuff about sex. There was a lot of stuff about fertility. Someone I know personally who had not talked to me about their infertility treatments posted an open question in the group of, hey, has anybody here ever had to have an embryo transfer as part of an IVF cycle on Shabbat because of scheduling? How did you navigate that? This is somebody that I know personally that had not shared this with me, not that we're super close, but I found out about it as part of a Facebook group that had a thousand people in it. And this notion of what constitutes private is very skewed on the internet. And I think this is actually kind of a weird extension of that because this is created explicitly for public consumption, but for, in some fashion at least, a very narrow definition of public and everybody else is kind of voyeuristic or is being treated as fringe and therefore voyeuristic by the creators involved. You may stumble across it, but it's not for you. It's for the people in my community, however I choose to define that. I think the Bohemian Balabusta thing is interesting because she's in Israel, and so there are a different set of cultural markers, right? So there's a much stronger, I think, modern Orthodox or what in Israel would be sort of part of the Datilumi religious Zionist stream, very spiritual, you know, kind of culturally distinct, meditation-oriented, uh, you know, religious practice in parts of Israel like Nachlaot or, you know, Bat Ayin. There are places that are very organized around this culture. I'm assuming that I don't know where Bohemian Balabusta lives. Do you? She lives on a, um, oh my gosh, I just, the word just dropped out of my head. Moshav? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that she's part of a certain cultural street, right? But I, I just, you know, that's what she's signifying. But those signifiers are only meaningful if you're part of that narrowly construed community. And otherwise, you're just a quirky, interesting, spiritual individual that other people might come across. One of the accounts that you had shared videos from, Tamar, that you didn't mention in your earlier roundup was a joint account from a married couple mm -hmm. that goes under the name Moses, Moses and, and Sipora. <laughs> I'm assuming those are not their actual names or else that's a hilarious biblical coincidence. That struck me actually as the most different and the most external facing mm -hmm. of the ones that I saw. Yeah. It's clearly, let me explain this to you, outsider, mm -hmm. in a way that felt like, let me share my culture with the uninitiated. And the comments on those were different and less, thank you, I've been looking for something like this, and more, this is dumb, why would you cover your hair with more hair? Or... <laughs> Hey, can you help me make some Jewish friends? Or like, it, it was that one was clearly for the outsider, and I thought it was interesting that that was the only account that we looked at that wasn't purely run by a woman. That there was a by us for them instead of by me for others who are like me. That one is also really interesting because the woman in that account, 
I have just been assuming that their names really are Moses and Zipporah, but it, I have no idea. She does often do like, get ready with me as I get dressed to go shopping for Shabbos or whatever. And like, it's just her in like casual Sneha's clothes. And then she jumps up and she's in fancier Sneha's clothes. And then she holds her wig in her hand and she jumps up and then she puts the wig on. It's just like, I don't, what are we getting here? Like, it's very funny because it's very closely tied to the convention of these videos. But as a result, it has nothing to say. It's weird in how empty it is of substance because it really is just like, get ready with me as I put my wig on, which is like not interesting. And also, you don't actually see her put her wig on, which that's my favorite part. Well, then you'd have to see her hair, which wouldn't be kosher. Right. Right. I know. I, so that's why I'm just like, what? I think we're not just, we're just not doing this. Like, um, <laughs> I think maybe you could just get dressed without us. Um <laughs> So getting dressed by yourself is so 20th century tomorrow. <laughs> you don't just jump and suddenly you're in your clothes. <laughs> you know that in like 500 years, historians are going to be like, in the year 2023, it was amazing. <laughs> People got the ability to just jump and magically the clothes that they wanted appeared on their bodies. <laughs> I, I think that the one piece that well th there are two elements that I also just want to raise and we don't really have to dive too much into them but one is that people are making money from this like for many people being an influencer is also their career I don't totally know how you monetize videos of yourself jumping in, in any way that's not just getting free stuff but but you do I, I know that people make good money real money you know, there are people like Bohemian Balabusta who are selling her class or her coloring book, which is wonderful. <laughs> it works. Or, it works. You bought it. <laughs> no, I bought it. Um, or Razy, who's clearly selling her app and and books and all, all these other things. But again, I'll, I'll talk about one of Razy's interviews where she talks about like that for many people making videos is their parnasa, is their way of making money and it's not just like their side hobby their passion project it's how they're putting food on their table and feeding their kids etc so that's one element and then another element Zahava you shared an article from JTA about how Chabad women who are shluchim who are emissaries they get to all come together once a year for like a huge visit which always has amazing social media content from it they're spread across the entire world. And one of the ways that they connect with one another is through Instagram. So being an influencer, being on social media is not just about projecting outside of your group, but it is also a way to feel connected when you're all by yourself to your community. On the first point about this being something that actually is making people money, I, I want to... So to start with Razie Freed, I think what I really admire about this to the extent, you know, what I, I mean, you got to admire the hustle, like she has turned this into something significant, but also just, this is the career she was prepared for. She was raised to be a homemaker, a wife and mother who had a beautiful Shabbos table and a beautiful home and, you know, raised her family in a life of Torah and Judaism. And, and I say all of that with 
with absolutely no negative valence, right? But this is this is the career that she was raised for, and she was raised for it in a form that served only her household. And she has leveraged those exact same skills in a way that is both money-making and influencing in sort of the legitimate, regular sense of the word that she has basically figured out a way to purvey that expertise beyond her household in a way that is helpful or meaningful or to to others. And I think that that is really smart and canny of her, that this is something where you might think, oh, this is somebody with no marketable skills. She's raised to be a homemaker. And it's like, no, she has a ton of marketable skills and she is proving it to you minute by minute. And I think so that is one thing. I also think that it is worth noting and I'm sure I can dig up a five-year-old article about this to share in show notes, but you know, it is actually not that uncommon for women in more insular communities where the primary expectation is, is that women are homemakers to have a home-based business, right? Mm-hmm. I've known women who they're primarily a homemaker and a wife and mother, and they also have a store in their house for maternity wear that caters to their community or you know they uh they run a mail order business of something via the internet that has to do with raising kids some kind of child product or something that this is a fairly common way for women for whom the social and communal expectation is that they are homemakers and very home centric to also have a home based business that revolves around the ideas of motherhood and family in some fashion and this is that just telegraphed outwards as opposed to oh women in my community know that they can come over and browse my maternity store instead it's women in the geographically extended version of my community know that they can come to me for home-based insights about Torah and Judaism and being a woman in my community or being something right whatever their lane is but in a way, this is a new medium for for that concept. And I mean, I kind of admire it, but I also think that this is women taking advantage of a new medium to break out of a much narrower notion of modesty without actually transgressing community norms. And that's really interesting. Is there anything that either of you are like, Jewish influencers should totally do this? Is there something that you're like, I want this? to be influenced or covered in some way. What I would love to see, and this is my own like personal agenda within Orthodox Judaism, right? But there are a lot of observances that are not heavily associated with Orthodox women that are not unavailable to Orthodox women. They're just not heavily associated with Orthodox women. And I would love for somebody with a huge following to be like, I decided the way I'm really going to embrace the fall holidays this year is to get the most beautiful set of Arba Minim, right? A Lulav Etrog set for myself this Sukkot, just for me to connect to my authentic personal experience of the holiday, right? Like put it in the lane about which these influencers are already talking about their Judaism, but use it to embrace a Jewish observance that is not primarily associated with Orthodox women. And like promote the heck out of it, right? The idea that like, I want to see tons of yeshivish women deciding that their personal, like, spiritual connection to Sukkot would be enhanced by having their own set of Lulav and Etrog this year. Or, like, the same way you might see some influencers go on a 
30-day diet challenge. It's like 30-day morning minion challenge. Mm -hmm. I decided to reconfigure my home life as a woman to attend shul for 30 days, including weekdays. Here's what it totally did for my fill in the blanks. <laughs> I think that would be fascinating because I think that if it came from somebody with credibility that it's about personal connection to the spiritual experience and not I have something to prove about feminism that it would be received differently and received by a different group of people and that would be really interesting to see. Building on that, I would really love to see some men doing some of the stuff that the women are doing. So I would love to see some men doing the like, this is what I'm cooking for Shabbos. <laughs> or like, this is how I get ready for the holiday. And then have it include like actually helping around the house. I have zero hope that that <laughs> will happen. But I would love to see some of that. Um, like I'm interested, I'm, I'm interested in women taking on things that women traditionally don't take on, but I'm less interested in that because women are, tend to be so overextended already. So I'm more interested in men taking on things that women usually take on. I would watch the heck out of that. <laughs> I also would love a, like, I think that there's not, there's like opportunities to talk about some of the less covered parts of the community. What? is life like for a like Hasidic family that's really living in poverty? Like what is, what are their struggles? Like what are the services that are available to them? Like how are they, how do they get there? Like how do some people make it out of that? Like, what, you know, all of that. I'm interested in that. You know, that's the kind of thing where it's like, I can imagine that if you're Razy Freed, you're really not trying to shine a light on the ugly stuff. You really want to like focus with the laser, focus on the like beautiful table. Um, but I, I personally am interested in like some of the other stuff. And I'm just, I'm also like a real process nerd. So I'm like really interested in just like, you have to do this stuff well in advance. So if you're Razy Freed and you're like, you know, last week she's already posting like Purim Sauda recipes and whatever. And first of all, Razy, please do better with your Purim Sauda. The picture was very unappetizing. Ouch. And I don't think that you should surround a huge piece of salmon with a bunch of smaller pieces of gefilte fish. <laughs> Come on now. Tamar has a problem with Razi's fish board. I just, I'm, I just think, as they say on Project Runway, the taste level is not quite there. I think that now that I reflect on it, that may be a reference to the traditional notion that mazal adar dagim, that like there is an association between the month in which Purim falls and fish, like the Pisces constellation. I'm fine with fish. I like fish. I'm just saying, I think <laughs> you can do fish better than that. But, you know, Razy and I don't overlap in many ways. And maybe that our take on fish is one of those many ways. <laughs> but like, I want to know, I'm actually, I, I recognize that this is like kind of the opposite of what influencers really want to do typically, but I really want to know like about the economics of it and about like setting it up, like who does what and how do you, how early do you start planning your Purim content? Like, are you really doing Purim during Hanukkah and Hanukkah during Sukkot and whatever, you know, like I'm interested in, in how far ahead things go and I'm interested in the economics of it, like how much money is Razy Freed spending on renting a house in which to show her tablescapes and film everything? Like there's actors sometimes in her shoots. So like 
how does she find them and how much does she pay them and like how much does she you know she spend a day just getting like a lot of establishing shots of like from kids I have a lot of questions about how it all works and I'm very interested in I don't know if anyone else is but I would watch the hell out of that for any kind of influencer but particularly this like specific flavor is very interesting to me about like how it actually all works out. And I'm interested in like, I would love to also hear like them talk about what the people in their life think about it and not in a kind of like making people feel bad because people around them think that their job sucks, but like how do they navigate relationships as an influencer? Because I feel like that's just like a socially complex situation to be in. Mm. You know, it's like one thing to want a lot of people to like, like your videos, but like, how does that affect your actual friendships and real life. I think there's a certain amount of behind the scenes that's fashionable in social media, but I also think there's a certain amount of established and secure that you need to be before you invite people past the polished and aspirational external presentation. And I wonder, Mm -hmm. I just don't know as somebody very much on the outside of this, how deep into this genre are we? How many years in are we, are people secure and established with big loyal fan bases that they can kind of afford to do that. I mean, there definitely are courses in how to become a social media influencer or like a master class or something. And I'm sure that's where they talk about how far in advance you're filming things, how long it takes to make that video where you jump up and jump down and you're in your clothes. I think for me, the content that I would really like to see actually is um, I would love to know more about what conversations are women having with the leadership there, Rav, their rabbis, about this choice to be so out in the public sphere? I know people have talked about, I know Razie talks about like the role of her husband in this career, but but I think specifically the conversation about do you turn to a rabbi when you want to post things on social media and what's that conversation like and What's the follow-up to the conversation? I would be really curious to hear a panel of Orthodox social media influencers talking about that. I would be up for that. I think the I'm going to be more interested in the interviews that these women give in, you know, more traditional media than I am in their non-traditional media itself. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this was fun. I'm so glad we got to dive into something that takes up a fair amount of my social media menu. Tamara Zahava, thanks for indulging us all. (laughs) Before we go any farther, I feel like I need to mention, I didn't put this person on the list because it's really like a very, very different vibe. But are you familiar with Jews Love Trees? No. He's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) Jews Love Trees is a Jewish man who loves trees and talks about like botany and Judaism. I don't know if he counts to see an influence or not. I don't know. I have no way. I haven't looked at his numbers, but like A, adorable, B, in some other universe than Razy Freed. <laughs> like so far from Razy Freed that Razy Freed has never imagined this man in her wildest dreams. Yeah. And not because he's like, like, I don't mean that in a negative way, I get for either of them. Just like they inhabit completely different universes and it is. He is a delight. I think his handle is Jew Who Loves Trees. Oh, the thing I love most about him, he's out in L.A. And I think he's, you know, he at some point was trying to make it as an actor, his wife, too. It's not like he's a botanist. He just 
has like a side passion for trees and finding trees. Um, what are those miniature trees? Bonsais. I like that about him. I am a certified tubish fat hater, but I was like, okay, you and only you can bring me all of the tubish fat content. Jew who loves trees. Judaism is large. It contains <laughs> multitudes. <laughs> it sure does. Speaking of multitudes, what do we contain in our recommendations? Zahava, lay it on me. So I have a recommendation that is already a couple of months out of date. So this is really for those who, like me, are late to this much vaunted article. But in the December 2022 issue of The Atlantic, Clint Smith had a cover article that was published online under the uh, title Monuments to the Unthinkable. America still can't figure out how to memorialize the sins of our history. What can we learn from Germany? And this piece is a really beautiful exploration of, in all its contradictions and complexities, the practice in Germany of placing Stolperstein, which translates to assembling stones, which are little metal plaques embedded in the sidewalk outside the homes from which Jews and other victims of the Nazis were deported, noting their names when they were born, when they were deported, and when and if they were murdered. And this, amid other sort of more traditional monument national memorializations of Germany, uh, of the Holocaust in Germany, and how this compares, contrasts with the kind of national memory, national reckoning or lack thereof that has happened in the United States around specifically its long history of anti-Black oppression. Clint Smith, who's a poet and author and also the host of the Crash Course Black History series, if you're into that, he had published a book a couple of years ago called How the Word is Passed, which is very much about how the history of slavery and anti-Black oppression is memorialized in various places in the United States. And he says that over time, he was asked repeatedly, who does this well? And he would reference the way Germany has memorialized the Holocaust. And over time, he says he had become more and more uncomfortable making this comparison without actually spending time in the country and seeing it for himself. And so this cover piece in, in the December 2022 issue of The Atlantic is about him doing that and interviewing people who are involved in it and what various Jewish and non-Jewish Germans and people living in Germany now feel about it, what it means to do that in a Germany that is so bereft of Jews. There are so few Jewish people remaining in Germany today, and many of them are not descended from people who were in German Jewish families before World War II. Many of them are, are post-Soviet uh, emigrates to Germany. And what it means to try and memorialize that in a country where Jews are essentially a thing of the past, as opposed to what it would mean to do that in America, where Black Americans are obviously a large and present population in the United States. And so it's a really fascinating article. I had the privilege of hearing Clint Smith speak about it recently, which is what prompted me to go back and actually read the article, which I hadn't gotten to when I first saw it. And I highly recommend it. So we'll share a link to that in show notes. And just to toss out one other sort of small, more of a smile endorsement. I don't really know why this is Jewish, but we received from PJ Library as the first book for my younger daughter, so aimed at a six-month-old, a beautifully illustrated children's book version of the lyrics of the song What a Wonderful World, which most people know as sung by Louis Armstrong. 
It's illustrated by Tim Hopgood. It's really lovely. Uh, it became a bedtime book for us, and now uh, both my kids really love the song, uh, know the words to it, and like to sing along, and it's become sort of a, a comfort bedtime song for us, and I really recommend this illustrated edition of the book. So I believe this author may have illustrated a couple of other songs as children's books as well. I'll check them out, but just wanted to share that. I don't think it's particularly Jewish, but apparently PJ Library did, so I consider myself officially licensed to endorse it on this podcast. PJ Library, questionable taste. (laughs) I think this is great taste, just questionable Jewishness. For those who don't know, I wrote a PJ Library book, so that joke was a sarcastic joke, which may or may not have been clear. (laughs) Mimi, tell us, what have you got to share? Well, side note, I think we should talk about PJ Library, and do you write a PJ Library book, or do you write a book that gets picked up by PJ Library? It's always a question I've had. I can answer that question, but that's probably for another time. Yeah. I don't have much, but I wanted to share a tool that has been really helpful or not helpful, but just like really cool in my life. This is for, wow, I'm going to go niche, okay? But you all might know might know that I really love the music and the musical tastes of Joey Weisenberg from the Rising Song Institute at Hadar. And Joey and other artists, including our friend Yosef Goldman, often create playlists for various Jewish holidays on Spotify. But I don't have Spotify. I have Apple Music, which was probably the wrong choice many, many years ago. But we've we've really dug our heels in. We're Apple Music people. So now I finally can access the playlists that Joey, Yosef, and other talented artists have made. There's an app. It's called Song Shift. And it's a way to get the music from one app to your preferred app. It's brought so much joy to our Adar celebration as we get ready for Purim to listen to Purim playlists from Spotify, but on my preferred music platform. So song shift, everybody. May it change your life for the good. Excellent. (laughs) First of all, I want to thank Mimi for the recommendation to read Yerba Buena from last month. I just finished it. It was lovely. It's not Jewish at all, but it was a really fun read. Highly recommend. But my recommendation, (laughs) I have been recently going back to playlists that I made in the like early to late aughts. Spotify wasn't a thing. You made your own playlist yourself with music that you owned. I had a Getting Ready for Shabbos playlist, which I have recently revisited and it remains wonderful. But mostly what I want to endorse is I know Miami Boys Choir had their moment in the last six months or so with their song that everybody got into, speaking of Jewish influencers. But I was so annoyed because I think, as I said on the show, that's not even their best song about Yerushalayim. Their best song about Yerushalayim is Shabbos Yerushalayim from the Shabbos Yerushalayim album. (laughs) check it out you're gonna love it it's gonna make your Shabbos amazing it starts with the sound of a siren because in Yerushalayim siren sounds to tell you that Shabbos is starting and first of all I listened to that song so much when I was in college that now anytime I hear a siren like in a song which actually is like relatively often that people put sirens in songs I expect to then hear Miami Boys Choir going 
Ay, 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 Shabbos. <laughs> Weirdly, that's rarely what happens. <laughs> I digress. You should all listen to this song. I really get into it every time I sing it. My partner gets into it. We're inculcating our children into this Shabbos Yerushalayim lifestyle. I am a Shabbos Yerushalayim influencer, is what I'm trying to say. And I am trying very hard to influence all of you within the sound of my voice. I will put a link to Spotify. I don't use Apple Music, but you can use Song Shifter and then you'll be fine. There we go. <laughs> Can't wait. I feel like we really covered all of our needs here. Are you going to share your playlist with everybody? Can she if it is not on a shared music platform? Oh, it's right. It's not on Spotify, but I can rectify that. Maybe Song Shift can do that for you. I'll see what I can do. I want to hear Tamar's Shabbos playlist, please. <laughs> Wow. Now the pressure is on. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Thank you all so much for listening. And thanks to Jordan Daniel Mills for editing our show. If you have a minute, it would be really great if you could leave a comment for us on our website, jpmedia.co or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. We always love to hear from our listeners and we also love to hear what you want us to talk about on future episodes. So please let us know. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can keep bringing you new episodes. Sahava, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you both for introducing me to the wide world of Instagram influencers, <laughs> Jewish and not, because this was a totally novel experience for me. <laughs> also, shout out to the multiple people that I did not know listened to this podcast that approached me in shul over the last few weeks to comment on my dynamic with my children in shul, as discussed <laughs> on our previous episode. That's sweet. Bye favorite thing is when people come up to me in shul and talk to me in shul about our podcast talking in shul. It's so meta. <laughs> Mimi, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. This was so fun. It really was. All right. See you both next month.